This episode of Into the Wild is sponsored by Leica Sport Optics. It's 2023, a new year and a chance for you lot to try something new. And if getting closer to nature and connecting with the natural world is on your list, then there's something I think you'll need. A pair of binoculars are essential for any nature nerd's day out to make sure you don't miss anything. And Leica's range of kit is, insert chef's kiss right here. Not only are they durable, lightweight, with a great range of optics, and come with a potential finance plan, but they are dead easy to use. To read more about what Leica have to offer for sport optics, visit their website, which is linked in the write-up of this episode. And now, on with the show. Hello everyone and welcome to Into the Wild, your weekly podcast all about wildlife, conservation and nature. I'm your host, Ryan Dalton. Thanks for coming back and uh, pressing play on the pod. Nerds, how you doing? Welcome to a new week to talk about wildlife and nature. (laughs) I'm never doing that again. I do apologise. I've had a coffee. Nerds, how you doing? Welcome back to another episode, a brand new week for us to talk about the natural world and everything in it. Um, hope you had a lovely weekend. Uh, what did you get up to? Mm-hmm. Interesting, interesting. What did I do? I saw a kestrel. Do with that what you will. <laughs> sorry, sorry. I'm on a mad one today. Uh, this episode today is a banger. Been waiting to get this person on the show for a long time, mainly because... She is just an absolute delight to talk to. And she would be very modest about all of this. But my guest is the wonderful naturalist, conservationist, nature writer, Amy Jane Beer. Amy Jane wrote a book last year, or it got released last year, called The Flow, about the rivers, uh, Amy's relationship with them, their importance. And it's just the most delightful book. And Amy's way with words and talking about the natural world i just I, I i'm just a massive fan of and i met amy in december at the end of 2022 on the Ida at a lovely gathering of nature lovers and i you could just tell like it, we had a lovely we were on this lovely walk and me and amy had a nice chat about dogs in nature and, and it was just it was just lovely from the get-go and i just I, I was so excited about doing this show because i like hearing from her and i like reading her things it's very unapologetically emotional and i love that i really do like it um so this episode we were focusing talking about rivers we start our conversation on rivers because of amy's book the flow which the link is in the write-up of this episode you can grab that so we talk about amy's relationship with them how that started wild swimming what rivers are like for people what they can do for people inhabitants of rivers the state of rivers in the uk which is quite depressing and then we go to talk about the right to roam because of the recent decision to stop wild camping on dartmoor by alex darwall um we decided to talk a bit about Right to Roam, the movement, and and hear from Amy. We've done an episode about Right to Roam before, but I wanted to hear Amy's uh, voice on that, about what it means to her and what she feels uh, like it's going to be in the future. So this is a wonderful episode, a wonderful chat, a very wholesome, wholesome chat. This is Rivers and Right to Roam with Amy Jane Beer. Amy Jane Beer, it is lovely to have you on Into the Wild. I've been wanting to have you on for such a long time. And I met you before you're on the show, which this never happens this way around. Oh, well, so that's it's, nice. lovely, it's lovely <laughs> to have it the other way. Um, how are you? I'm good, thank you. And it's lovely to be here. Thanks, thanks for having me. Likewise, I was I you know, I've been been listening in and watching your your social media for for quite a while before we actually <laughs> I do got apologize. to meet. So yeah. So <laughs> um yeah, it was we we met in December on the Isle of Butte, which was just a lovely weekend, wasn't it? It was gorgeous. I'm still having flashbacks. And I'm thoroughly enjoying the uh, the ensuing WhatsApp group from that weekend. It was pretty special. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so let's crack on with the first question, which is the obvious one. For anyone that doesn't know, do you want to explain who you are and what you do? Um, so my name is Amy Jane Beer. I'm an erstwhile biologist turned naturalist turned writer. Started out as a as a more of a science writer, really, an editor, mm. and I've kind of drifted from science through natural history to now what you would probably call nature writing. Yeah. It's a little bit more, a little bit more free form, I think. Um, And I've become a lot more confident and comfortable writing about the less scientific, but equally meaningful aspects of our relationship with nature. How do you find that? Because that's, that is quite a jump, actually, when I never thought of that, like writing from a scientific level to then writing to the more, like you said, like kind of 
I was going to say meaningful, but I guess like human aspect and the connection side, is that, does it take a bit of getting used to? Um, once I gave myself permission to do it, it was almost as simple as yeah. that. Well, I, I met a few other writers and realised quite belatedly that there was this perfectly acceptable way of writing about nature that didn't necessarily have to cling to the sort of rigid scientific framework yeah. that, I, that I'd, was where I'd been for a very long time. And it was like a light going on. And so I thought, I'll, I'll give it a go, um, sort of timidly at first and very self-consciously. I just wrote a few pieces and, and, and sent one of them to Patrick Barkham, lovely Patrick Barkham, mm. who I'd met once or twice and said, mm, having a go at writing like this, what do you think? <laughs> and he put me in touch with the then editor of The Guardian Country Diary. Um, and they started asking me for the odd piece now and then. And then that turned into a, a contract. So I now write monthly for The Guardian, have done for about five years. And um, that was an amazing kind of testing ground for this new way of writing. And again, yeah, you definitely. can see if you look at those early country diaries of mine, they were they were still quite natural history type writing. Mm. And where I felt I had to have a sort of scientific point or a, um, a natural history <laughs> kind of nugget to impart to people. And yeah. then suddenly I just started writing what I was thinking and feeling um and then it all just started kind of flowing out like the floodgates opened and and um yeah I feel much much more comfortable and much more myself so nice not having to put on that persona that scientific persona anymore and the science is still there I still want to get things right and accurate and you know and of course and, of course and true but I think like, <laughs> and not but but not having to like force yourself to back yourself up mm. I think is more it's a much more organic way of writing. It sounds like like you. you I, I, there's a big thing for me is like, I guess the more I've got into like science communication and just like doing research and stuff is like I've just realised there's so much disbelief, mistrust in what people are saying, and I really don't like that because you know we everyone's got knowledge and experience, and I think sometimes it's yes, like you said, science is important, but it's not the whole pie, right? Mm, there's there's mm. other aspects of it, and whilst science even can say one thing, that doesn't even mean that that is the case. Yeah, so I mean, science can tell us a lot so. of things, but it doesn't necessarily tell us what we should do with that knowledge. Um, exactly. That's got to come from somewhere else. So, um, <laughs> exactly, so yeah, I'm interested yeah. in all of that. That's amazing. What a lovely way of writing. I love it as well. Um, so I know from spending a weekend with you on the Isle of Butte uh, with nature people, I know that the natural world is just, I, I mean, it goes without saying, is something that is incredibly important to you. So what has been your biggest nature highlight in the last seven days? So a couple of days ago, day before yesterday, I think it was, I went up mm. onto the North York Moors for a walk just because it was the first of these glorious clear days clear cold days you know we need yeah. feels like proper winter um and i've had quite a, a hectic i had quite a hectic weekend which will probably come on to the reasons for that a little we bit later but, um, <laughs> um, and i needed to decompress so um so i went up and took a walk one of those walks where the ground is frozen solid and everything is yeah. frosted and there's a light dusting of snow and just this amazing blue dome sky and i noticed where I, the, the path i was walking on led to some windy pits I don't know if you know windy what a windy pit, pit is. <laughs> wow, well, I can have a guess, but I'll be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, something I've been meaning to go and investigate for a long time, and I hadn't really registered that there was something in this area, but um, when I saw they were there on the map, I had to go and find out. So they're, they're a sort of pothole, but a, right. a Yorkshire specialism, or certainly this designation as windy pit is a, is a, a Yorkshire term. <laughs> Sounds and they, Yorkshire. And they, and they gust warm air, so on a day as cold as... as well, it has been all week. The air that kind of emanates from these potholes feels extraordinarily warm. They're very unobtrusive. They're just holes in the ground. They've got iron grills over them to obviously stop me falling in. But I mean, you genuinely yeah. would just you put your foot wrong and didn't know it was there. You would go, you would go down and you would go down tens of metres and be horribly, brutally battered on the way down. Um, <laughs> um, but... But you lean over them and it's like the warm air that comes out of, I don't know if you stay in bunkhouses where the drying room is and you get that sort of, yes, yeah, that, yeah. that sort yeah. of humid, fuggy, sort of sweaty foot, organic yeah, fog that, that yeah. comes out. <laughs> um, and it's a bit like they that. They sound beautiful. Yes. <laughs> so it's, um, um, but what an amazing thing. And, and Yeah, and that's natural. That's natural, yeah. There's just this, I mean, obviously on a cold day, the, I guess it draws the warm air out a bit more um, yeah, yeah, feels forcefully. More. So you feel mm. this draft. Um, but the smell of it is really organic. And and um, <laughs> there's all sorts of folklore associated with them, obviously. Um, I bet. Yeah. Uh, and they're quite um, kind of darkly, deeply uncanny, unsettling sort of places. But even before you discover that some of these pits, they've discovered 
the remains of ritually killed humans in them. <laughs> so, oh my god! So, oh so, my god! Yeah, yeah. As well as the bones of lots of anim- other animals, and, and and they're used as bat hide vacula as well. So there's some some from fantastic natural history, some amazing human oh, that's history. Amazing! I'd love to um, see one now. Yeah. Well, I, hence me being so excited to go and go and see yeah. one. So country diary forthcoming on that um, <laughs> next <Yeah. laughs> next week, I think. That's why I brought it up as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's amazing. I've never heard of it. Windy pits. Mm. God, I wish I could call the episode title that, but it just won't have much to do with what we're talking about. <laughs> I'll use that to lure people in. Excellent. <laughs> we are talking about two things today. I say two things like as if they're separate, but they are quite, they're very much related, I think. Or certainly have elements or crossovers. But let's start with talking about rivers, because your latest book, The Flow, which came out last year, wasn't it? Yeah, August last yes. year. Yeah. It was focused on these. So I want to ask you is... How have and why have rivers captivated you? So I guess the main kind of formative part of my relationship with rivers was um, in the noughties. Um, Mm. I met my now husband, Roy. Um, We we lived in different parts of the country. Um, And when I started visiting him, um, I discovered that his circle of friends and his social life just revolved around whitewater kayaking. Um, And so when I moved to York, you know, I was already very outdoorsy, quite adventurous and willing to give most things a go. But kayaking was something that had kind of passed me by a little bit. But I just I rapidly realised that if I was going to get to see much of him, I was going to have to at least give it a go. (laughs) Um, And I I took to it. I wouldn't say like a duck to water, but I took to it like, um, yeah, um, like a landlubber. (laughs) And it took me a long time. Yeah, it took me a long time to to get to grips with kayaking. It's people that do it well make it look very easy, and it's they do. And it's initially often not very easy. And I'm not very I'm not very gifted in terms of you know physical adeptness and balance and on all these sort of attributes that make good kayakers. So it took me a long time, but I did I did Mm. get there, and it just became something that I loved doing. Not just the physical challenge, uh, the camaraderie was great. It's a very kind of team because you look, you know, you really yeah. do need to look after each other on the water. But the places you get to go, you know, there are magical parts of not just this country, but but certainly of, of Britain that you can only get to if you have the way over the water, either climb down yeah. waterfalls or um, or kayak down down rapids. And you get to sort of gorges and canyons and just these Tolkien-esque, beautiful, yeah. beautiful places. And so the journey aspect, the ex exploration aspect of that sport I just it just captured me and for 10 years that's what we did you know we would just pray yeah. pray for rain every weekend and we'd be out there running rivers and the steeper the faster the more adrenaline inducing the better um oh, that's amazing. so that was that was very intense but it all ended rather suddenly for me anyway my, when my friend Kate drowned in a kayaking accident Jesus on New Year's Day of 2012 so 11 years ago now hmm. and um it was I had a one-year-old at that point, so my wings had been clipped somewhat anyway in terms of yeah. what I was able to do. I mean, just the practicalities of, you know, Roy and I had always kayaked together and now it was a case of swapping. You've got um, to be swapping around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yes, being a parent also kind of gives you a very different approach to risk and then losing someone you, that you love in such a yeah. brutal way. Yeah, it changed it and, and I just found that I couldn't do it anymore. I, I, st- I stepped away for a long time from from rivers, but then about, about seven years later, I... I found myself going to visit the river where Kate had died and mm. and realising how much I missed it. You know, that it was a bit really? of a shock. I went went back to sort of, I think, sort of try and make my peace and just came away thinking, where have I been? What, you know, why, why have I really? been staying away? And I also realised there was so much more to see than I'd ever noticed. Mm. You know, when you're, when you're concentrating on paddling a certain line, keeping upright, being, you know, looking out for hazards and on the, t- mm. the, t- the technical aspects of that sport, you're aware of the environment, very much so, but you don't really have time to properly take it all in. Um, and so much of my relationship with nature is very much one of letting it come to me. Generally, I'm not, I'm not mm. really a, you know, conquest kind of kind of girl anymore. <laughs> you know, I've, I've done the mountaineering and I've done, I've, I've tried all those sort of adrenaline sports, but I'm much more now a kind of hugger of valleys and quiet places and a just wanting to of be. Valleys, Amy. That's such a lovely sentence. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> um, yeah, just uh, just finding a place where you can just be still and 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 see what comes to you, and what comes to you is often just such a gift. Um, so yeah, I, I decided to to go back to rivers, um, not just the whitewater ones, but but rivers generally, and and general, and just yeah. try and make up for what I'd missed. It took me so many places, not just in in physically, but in my mind 
Um, mm. Rivers have that quality of just carrying your thoughts and your imagination, um, leading 100%. you forward and leading you yeah. back um, and just forcing you to confront some of the really big questions. <laughs> and mm. I just, and that's very connecting. That's not just with other forms of, of life, non, the non-human residents of the river, but with the other people that have gone before and had those sorts of thoughts. So I got mm. very drawn by the, the theology and the, and the mythology and the sort of spiritual questions and connections that time by river just seem to naturally prompt in, in us. Yeah. They're very grounded, aren't they? Mm. I, find, yes. I find like whenever I'm near them, it's like, I don't know, you could sit for hours. It's one of those environments that I can just kind of be at. You know, sometimes I go somewhere and go, oh, this is lovely. How, how long do we stay? Or, you know, how long do we look at the view for? Or something like that. But whereas a river is kind of like, I could all day, like I could just sit there and just think, and I probably get the same power of that that I do from an hour of therapy. Mm. Like, mm. do you know what I mean? Because you're, there's something about the moving water and, you know, regardless of the, the day or the weather. But uh, yeah, it's just a very grounded and tranquil yeah. places quite often. Yeah. One of the people I, I spent a day on a river with the artist David Miller and he mm. he said, very strange to say, but water earths me. And, you know, that's exactly the point yeah. you're making. And it does. Yeah. And psychologists recognise that as well. Just the property of looking at uh, that water has of being light, being animated, but not being, there's no sort of general point of focus that you look yes. at yeah, it's, yeah. So that, it's called soft soft fascination this this quality that Ooh, that, cool. that water has that maybe shifting leaves in a canopy might have flames mm. you know when you gaze into a, the campfire or whatever you know they all have this similar shifting quality that doesn't have a particular there's nothing much happening but but everything's happening and it frees your mind it changes yeah, yeah yeah it changes you <laughs> and, and it's yeah you could just dwell there forever <laughs> Yeah, 100%. And I do. <laughs> I quite often find what I do. Um, what about the life the, the life you see around a river? Do you have river inhabitants that you love to go and see? Not so much individuals. I would love to have, you know, personal relationships with, particularly, you know, there are otters on my local river, but you see them so oh, seldom that you never quite I'm know really... if it's the same individual or not. And it probably is because they're quite territorial. But um, yeah. yeah, but there are definitely species that sort of feel like my familiars um the dipper is is definitely one i have a oh where is she oh she's in the other room at the moment i've got a stuffed dipper <laughs> uh, one of my where has she got a live dipper on it <laughs> <laughs> but um that i found on um a river called the clough i think this bit of the clough, clough was possibly just in yorkshire but between yorkshire and cumbria mm. and i was out looking for water voles and i almost stood on this dead dipper freshly dead just lying in the in the rushes at the side of the river the dipper is one of the first birds that i really remember being slightly obsessed with and yeah to just find one so perfect you know so sad that it was so it was so very dead but but so freshly recently dead um yeah i felt this sort of small tragedy of it but within a second or two i was also thinking i have a dipper <laughs> This, uh, this, I mean, <laughs> awful urge to collect and and to keep. Um, so it was the first bit of taxidermy I ever paid for. I, I sent her off, and um, yeah, she's now on the dresser in the kitchen. I love that though. <laughs> I think that's I think that's beautiful. <laughs> I really do. I think having like like that collector's part of nature, that responsible collectors, is kind of like. It's beautiful because mm. now, I, look, I've got a dipper on my shelf. And mm. I just, I don't know, I think that's something I'd love to, I love seeing that in people's Well, houses. there's something amazing to be able to actually hold the animal in your hand and open out the wings mm. and, and feel the, the weight of it and the, the size of the feet. You know, I'd never really realised how enormous mm. a dipper's feet are, but it makes sense. Yeah. Um, and how stubby their wings are. Um, and that also makes sense because they're not just used for flying. They use them as hydrofoils to sort of plane, to surf themselves down to the bottom of the river when they're when they're feeding they go down and angle their wings so that the flow of the water they always face upstream the flow of the water kind of pushes them down otherwise you know they're so buoyant birds are naturally very buoyant that they need they need these sort of features to just allow them to to live the way they do and i'd kind of read all that i knew that in a sort of vaguely academic way but until you're holding mm. the bird in your hand none of it really sinks in it's a new power isn't it when you've got it right in front of you it really does mm. kind of emphasize and underline it yeah very special uh kingfishers obviously you know always just yes, they just course. have that that just <laughs> that defibrillating power to yeah. just you know restart it's like a your shooting day. star sometimes it's like a shooting star with a kingfisher for me because it's kind of like what was that was that one was that one it's like that bolt of blue all of a sudden absolutely it's gone. yeah it just it just you're absolutely right they 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 instigate the same kind of gasp reaction that yeah. I can't believe I just seen that. and it feels like it was just for you um yeah because you so happen to be there at the right time you happen to be looking the right way yeah, yeah. magic magic 
That's nice. Did you wild swim? Mm, yes. Do you? Very much all so. D- all year round? Yeah, yeah. I can't oh, remember. When did I last? Oh, it wasn't Butte. I've definitely swum this year. Have you? Uh, yeah. Because yeah, we went in oh, the we sea, in the, didn't Yeah, we? I went to Flamborough, actually. The, it was oh, a sea. You? I've not been in the river much because it's our river is it's one of those that once, when it's been raining heavily, you, there's a, a lot more muck in it. And it's not particularly safe, you know, when it's flood, when it's in flood conditions, yeah, which it has yeah. been for a couple of weeks now. Um, so, yes, my last swim was was in the sea at Flamborough North Landing, so under those beautiful chalk cliffs that in summer have all the God. all the um, the birds on them. And actually, really... that's that's a great way to, in the summer you can swim there. And the sea, when this, the tide comes up, the sea kind of raises you up the cliffs, so you get a better view from the water than you do from <laughs> from the land or from the church. From... That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I really want to like cold water swimming. I really do. <laughs> I just don't have. I just have such toxic relationship. Oh. <laughs> It, Do you know? But you saw me go in. I did. To my yeah, bravo. <laughs> <laughs> I said a lot of words that, despite we censor this podcast, I'm not going to shout now. <laughs> but and there was a TV crew there. Yeah. So well, so your your heroics are captured somewhere on film. Yeah, and there's a lot of bleeping if it's there anywhere. <laughs> like, there's no way that went out on TV. <laughs> not before nine pm anyway. Um, yeah. No, I do. I do love. I, I love love the world swimming. I love it. I do love the cold. You know, it's almost before almost every winter swim. There's always that moment where you almost talk yourself out of it and just think, yeah. oh, maybe you know, maybe today's not the day. Maybe it may, you know, maybe I should just go home and have a cup of tea. <laughs> and I just know that if I don't do it, I will regret it. And if I do do it, I never regret it. You know, it's you just That's you, fair. You, you just come out completely renewed, fired up. It's got easier. I will say, mm. get, like each time I've done it, well, you know, you're not going to die. Well, hopefully not anyway. <laughs> well, hopefully not. <laughs> but it was, it's definitely got easier each time I've I've gone in and I've spent longer. It's, it's like I'm becoming a hobnob in a tea. I can last longer. Like they're the best biscuits to dip. <laughs> so I feel like I'm getting to that stage where I can, I can get a good five seconds in it <laughs> without break. Yeah. Well, let's talk about like, because this has been a big thing in the last year as well is the state of rivers in the UK and we don't want to get too depressed and too quick but I guess when we're talking about something like a habitat we do have to face reality what are our rivers like in the UK out of 10 on a level of health well I mean you could look at it the the, the scale of rating for rating rivers I think there are five categories or possibly okay. four and none of our rivers meet the good category um this is by the environment agency's own own figures their own system wow. for for grading the quality of rivers so not a single not a single river in england meets good chemical and and ecological status not a single one Jeez. which that sounds shocking and then you realize that good isn't even the top category you know there's high so none of them are oh, high great. none of them are good <laughs> so you know it's it's um yeah we haven't even haven't even got any second rate rivers um, by you know by the by the judgment of the agency that's supposed to enforce protection so yeah that's that's pretty pretty damning that's, that's where we are that's where so we're not even like in the middle but i mean has that gotten worse over the last few years or has that just always been the case you could you know, depending on how far you go back you, you could go back to you know the, the industrial revolution when there were rivers that you could literally light with a match because there was so much methane or hydrogen sulfide or various other horrendous chemical gases being given off by them. So there aren't many that are in that kind of state. I mean, even in in the 1970s, you know, some of the rivers through Sheffield were like that. So that level of contamination and toxicity is rare now. So in some ways you could say, oh, you know, it's improved. You know, the Thames had no salmon in it when I was young and and they came back, you know, there was, and that was hugely celebrated. Might have been something to do with us being in the EU (laughs) and being forced to, um, yeah, being forced to, to kind of abide by habitats regulations. Those damn EU laws. Mm, mm, maybe some of them were quite a good idea. Um, so things did improve, um, but they didn't improve far enough. You know, we were still mm. kind of dragging ourselves yeah. out of the, the terrible state. So, you know, there are rivers that have been in worse conditions than they than they are now. But certainly over the last decade, there has been a very substantial decline. And that is... It's pollution and it's abstraction. So, so right. the, we have water companies who are taking out more water than, particularly the the chalk rivers of the southeast, um, have to give. And so the rivers are lower than they should be. In some cases, they're running dry, and we're we're 
we're draining the aquifers from which those rivers are replenished. So, you know, this is bad. You know, the, the aquifers, they replenish themselves very, very slowly. So, you know, when you've emptied that bathtub, it's going to take a really long time to to mm. refill it. So there's obstruction um, and then there's pollution. And the, the two main sources for that are agriculture and, again, the water companies, um, sewage. So we've all heard right. a lot about the sewage yeah, scandal. Yeah. We know that, you know, the water companies, by their own admission, are releasing raw, untreated sewage into our rivers and our seas for, for millions of hours. It, it, it's pretty unacceptable. They're doing so under regulations which say that under exceptional circumstances, you can release the sewage to avoid overwhelming um, yeah. the sewage treatment facilities um, because there's, you know if, it's, if there's very very heavy rain there's so much runoff that's joining the sewage because we have this mixed up sewage system where you know water running through down down drains and off gutters sometimes mm. ends up in the same flow as, as the sewage from your toilet or your washing machine or whatever so to avoid complete overwhelm of the sewage treatments works which obviously would be a bad thing they have this permission but they abuse it they use it even when it hasn't mm-hmm. been raining. And so that becomes not, you know, that that can't be construed as a spill, as though it was some kind of accident. That's that's dumping. And that's for economic reasons, because it's quite expensive to see, treat sewage and it's quite cheap to just dump it in a to river. Just dump it. And these are, these are privatised companies where the cost of doing things is really important. Uh, and we've had 30 years of that. So what we're seeing is we've got 30 years of failure to, yeah. to invest in infrastructure and a situation which is quite difficult to, to now fix without, you know, even, even if they all had a complete attack of conscience overnight mm. and started spending money hand over fist, it would still take a, a lot of years Another 30, to 30 fix the problem. Yeah. So, there are, and some of these companies are are borrowing money, they're in, you know, financial difficulty anyway. So there's this sort of reticence from government to force them into it because they, the companies mm. will fail um, as, as businesses and then we end up bailing them out again. So, so yeah, it's used, their, their, their complete kind of failure as businesses is now a reason for not renationalizing. I mean, it's just, it's you, just it, mad. It's, it is mad and it couldn't, it just, you could almost not think of a, more sorry the language but you know it's yeah it's appalling it's a complete failure of, of their responsibility to the to the customer but also to the the very system that they're, they're exploiting you know these rivers are not water is not um, an infinite resource quality water is not it, like these kind of systems that we're, we've ended up for me a result of short-term wins over long-term goals kind of thing manage it short term i'm in and out of the job or whatever privatized companies same as governments quite often as well and but at the same time it's like when it's, your system that's meant to benefit you is broken like fix it like get better like you deserve better like don't even look at me don't even look at the community if you can't manage to put yourself there do something for you mm-hmm. and your direct family and friends like they deserve better and i just i sit there sometimes and I think about things like this, especially when it's been in the news. And I just go, how? Mm. I don't know. I, I get really bogged down is probably the pun intended expression. <laughs> but yeah, I, I don't, I don't, it's just. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. And, you, you know, it's, it's a cliche to say, I don't know how you sleep at night. But I mean, genuinely. I don't. Yeah. How, I don't. how do you? <laughs> yeah. Because this is the thing. This is what I don't think they know enough. Maybe they know it and they don't care. Or maybe they've never been told it. But them doing that. And I'm really sorry. I'm going to swear here. I'm saying that more to Amy and my listeners know. <laughs> it's that everyone thinks they're a mm. Like, everyone, why are you doing this? Like, no one appreciates this. So, again, how do you sleep at night? The reason they're doing it is because as, as, as you know, limited companies, they are obligated to their shareholders. You know, they are obliged to make money. That's, that is the function. Once yeah. you're a limited company, your main job, if you like, is to make money for your shareholders. That's where your responsibility lies in terms of your position, your job. Yeah. That is the problem. I mean, not just in within companies, but that is the problem, isn't it? The problem. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's, that's England's problem. Yeah, well, that's the global problem, you know. Yeah, it's, yeah. It, it, so a system that prioritises profit, we're doomed it's by broken. it. We're doomed by yeah. it across the board. Well, because it's short term mm. as well. That's the thing. Mm. It looks for, the, the, uh, for three or four years, mm. tops, mm. five years maybe. Mm. But you don't look long term. No. And and even if you do look long term, it is, like you said, only that profit aspect. Mm. It's not like... But if you did look, look longer term, you'd realise that your profits wouldn't be... Yeah, well, your profits only going to keep risk. going as long as the resource does. And, um, exactly. Yeah. So that's why they don't look long term. Because mm. <laughs> it doesn't benefit the four. Right. Okay. So rivers are... <laughs> <laughs> 
rivers are. That's it. There are some, yeah, there are some glorious rivers. um, And I would encourage people still to go out and engage with them and still swim in them, even though you know what might be in there. You know, I quite often get asked, you know, what, oh, you can't swim in there. It's, you know, Particularly now, people are more aware of the of the, yeah. the of the problems. You know, I get this sort of you'll you'll get sick. You know that the rivers are full of shit. What are you doing? You're mad. It's irresponsible. And I just think I actually, you know, it's more important that I swim in there now because you know we're still expecting the otters and the trout yeah. and the and the frogs to be in there. Um, yeah. They don't have an option. So I'll swim in there, and occasionally, yes, I might get sick, and then I will get mad. And then, <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then I get more, even more determined to do something about it. So, um, so yeah, no, I won't stop. I mean, obviously, I keep my mouth shut quite a lot. But <laughs> yeah, in, when I'm in and the then river, you I open mean, the mouth when you come out to shout. Yeah, mm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, sorry to interrupt the episode, Nature Nerds. It's Ryan, your host here. I just want to give you a quick shout out about something. Into the Wild always aims to be a free show accessible for everyone. However, running it is not free. If you would like to support Into the Wild and say thanks, then you can do so by visiting ko-fi.com forward slash into the wild pod. The link is in the write-up of this episode. By doing this and buying us a coffee, you are helping the future of Into the Wild. Thanks very much and back onto the show. Um, okay, let's let's have a light moment after that discussion about rivers and the state of them in England. Let's have a light moment. I'm I'm going to ask you something I didn't put in the email actually. So Nadia and I, when I sent you an email about this podcast in the new year, you replied something that was very lovely, and I hope you don't mind me saying this. You just you said instead of saying Happy New Year, you said Happy Orbit. Right? <laughs> you probably don't even remember. Like maybe you remember. You say it to everyone, but when I read that, it really made. I was like, that's a really nice. Thing. I was like, that's really nice. I'm going to start. So I've started to say that. Well, I said that to people in the new year. And I said it to our mutual friend, Nadia Sheikh. I said, oh, do you know what? I had a lovely email from Amy Jane where she said, happy orbit. And I just thought, what a lovely way. It's changing the way we think about the new year. It's you know making it a bit more natural and stuff like that. And I really liked it. And we had a little bit of a chat and we went, Amy Jane's just lovely, isn't she? <laughs> like, everything she does is just, she's just, she's so warm. She's so like, like just poetic and lovely. And I joked and went, there must be something Amy Jane is not good at. <laughs> that I can just latch on to. <laughs> and I said, I bet, like, you know, I bet maybe she makes a really bad jam. And then Nadia said, no, Amy will make a banging jam. So now I've got to ask you, Amy, do you make jam? I have made jam. I wouldn't say it's great jam. <laughs> I have a bit of an issue with setting. It's yes. one of those things. Yeah. <laughs> I, I tend to make gin. <laughs> You make gin, <laughs> slow gin, and hetero gin, and all that sort of thing. Um, oh yeah, okay. I'm more I of a you kind of yeah, fermenting I, gin. <laughs> yeah, and I make cordials, that sort of thing. But yeah, I have had issues with jam. Is it all right to say like that's made me a bit happy? <laughs> <laughs> I fail with jam. I fail with lots of things. So if anyone ever says like, "Oh, Amy's just," I'm like, "Yeah, yeah," but but she can't set her jam. <laughs> Say what you want about her jam. She's always like liquid. Yeah. More of a cordial. Hot sugar generally is, yeah, is bad. <laughs> uh, you know, I've got, oh, every year um, we celebrate Yule. And one of one of the traditions yeah. that we, we, we have is that I make a gingerbread house. And that's one of the things oh, like, you yes. know, I, I want to make that from first principles because actually, yeah. you know, it's really simple and really cheap. But you have to glue it together with caramel. And so molten sugar. And every year, I mean, I've still... We probably oh it's just almost healed this year's burn oh from i can the, see yeah the, <laughs> <laughs> uh, every year you know i sacrifice cement. another bit of skin to to make my son a gingerbread house <laughs> so yeah just that yeah so it's the hot sugar thing i yeah i don't yeah. don't quite have the feel for it i bet it. it's still a nice jam oh I it's nice it but it's more of a kind of sauce <laughs> <laughs> Can you bring some to Butte next year? Yeah, yeah so let's both I make start some. making jam, and I end up with, with a, a sauce. But it's yeah, what, you can't really go wrong, can you? Fruit and sugar. And, you can't. And, you're putting it on toast yeah, anyway. It doesn't yeah, matter. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, I'm glad I've asked you that. That's confirmation <laughs> for me now. Uh, the other question I was going to ask you is when we we're on on the Isle of Butte, we spoke. There was so many conversations about community. And I think as we were there with a few people, it kind of came up, and we we're talking about like you know, all these nature chats and we had that lovely moment around the bonfire where um, Nadia Sheikh said some lovely words. But I wanted to say to you, like, how important is community in your appreciation for nature and the natural world? As a freelancer, you spend a lot of time by yourself. Mm. As a writer, mm-hmm. you spend a lot of time kind of with your own thoughts echoing around your own head. Um, and it's really only in the last four or five years that I've found, I felt like I've found a community 
You know, I used to belong mm. to natural history groups and the local mammal group, and I'd go along to things. And, it, you know, you'd learn stuff. When, when we were kayaking, you know, that was a very close-knit community, and yeah. that's one of the things I loved about it. And we sort of lost that. I and mean, I'm still friends with all of those guys, but it's but we don't have the the thing that binds us in the same way yes. anymore. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, that, that group on Butte was a, was a great example. I just, I feel like I've kind of, it's a beautiful thing to suddenly find people who yeah. you feel so at home with. Um, mm. And some of you, you know, I've not known very long. Some of you I've not met many times. I mean, yeah. online meetings, you know, this is a, a new way of getting to know people, <laughs> yeah. isn't it? But, it's um, very different But though. in person and certainly with, you know, that the Right to Roam campaign and to an extent New Networks for Nature, the other um, organisation I'm involved with. Mm. It's amazing when you find people that you feel you don't have to pretend to be anything other oh, than yourself so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. with. And Nadia has a, has a way of, of making people at ease with who they are. I mean, it's, it's a gift. Um, it is a gift. And, yeah. and, it, and to see people kind of just unfurling under that sort of generous, forgiving, beautiful space that she creates. It, it, it's everything. I mean, if we can't work together, you know, that's, that's, that's humanity's saving grace it's the thing that makes us the wonderful species that we are is that ability to collaborate communicate um mm-hmm. and, and and make extraordinary things happen so yeah it's everything yeah it's so hard to maintain sometimes yeah it can be in the world to build we live bridges in. Yep. between these sort of you know it's that there's a danger that community becomes tribal you know that, yes. um and so you just got to be very watchful of that so great that you have this group of people that you feel comfortable with and that you, you belong with and you feel confident to be yourself and say what's on your mind. But yeah, that can be exploited so easily. You know, you see the rise of populist politics and they are appealing to that that need that we have and that they're, they're appealing to the way that we tend to let our guard down when we're with people who mm. we feel agree with us and us, you know, it's our greatest, it's our greatest asset, but also a bit of a potential Achilles heel, I guess. Let's go on to our final bit. Are you ready to do this? oh yes (laughs) (laughs) i was right what's what's that what's that what are you gonna be like right alex darwell what's that's the subheading (laughs) to this bit right to roam to explore to experience to camp the thought that one person or one family might have more right over nature because their wallet is bigger than mine no doesn't sit well with me it must have been a busy week for you amy Mm-hmm. What is Right to Rome for you? So Right to Rome is how I've lived. You know, as an adult, I've realised that as a child, the walks we did sometimes with my family, you go back and you think, oh, there was no footpath there. We were trespassing. But it wasn't, you know, I had the most straight-laced, law-abiding parents. Um, so it never even occurred to me that we would have been doing anything that was considered wrong, let alone illegal. So... It was slightly startling to to realise that trespassing was, you know, trespassing in my in my childhood mind was something that was probably a bit like vandalism. Obviously, it was something you know yeah. I wouldn't do that because I'm a good girl. And then you realise, yeah. oh, actually, you've always done that. <laughs> you've been doing <laughs> um, it for ages. But you've always, you know, you've you've just uh, just wandered. I mean, nothing nothing drastic and nothing defiant or performative. Just I just always felt at home if I want to step off the path to go and you know a tree or find a chase a butterfly or find the bird that's calling Mm. it just would do it and much as our celebrated network of public rights of way allows us to traverse across the land to get from a to b you know life isn't always about traversing the land going from a to b a public right of way does not give you permission to stop even you know you're not actually you know if a landowner came along and found you having a picnic on a public right of way they could tell you to move on know that <laughs> this is it is it is literally a right to make your way across the land and we we earned that right our predecessors fought even for that freedom and that was as much as the system was willing to give us this ability to, to make your way from a to b and so many of those footpaths actually are not fit for purpose anymore a lot of them are not properly signed a lot of them are either very overgrown or across ploughed fields or through fields of livestock that can be very intimidating to cross particularly if you are walking a dog legitimately walking a dog and there's a field of male cattle that you have to get across you know i've had to i've had to release my dog on 
three occasions to literally run for her life really? to avoid myself being trampled. Um, and so, and when you've got kids with you as well, you know, that is terrifying. Mm. Yeah, that is. So the sensible thing to do would be to go around the field, but you'd be trespassing. So, you know, they're, they're, <laughs> it just robs you of the ability, the current system robs you of the ability to make good decisions. Just the idea that owning land gives you a right to exclude other people. You know, it, it is it is literally medieval. Um, mm. the, the law is a medieval one based on property being the thing that needs more protection than anything else. And that came from that paranoid position that the Normans had after having, you know, stolen our land. <laughs> yes, of course they were paranoid about us wanting it back. And that's what that's the law we're left with. So, yeah, I think for people to use their wealth in such a way, you know, you can use your money to buy whatever you like, but the idea that you can own land because you've made or inherited more money is really strange. You know, I made my son with my own flesh, but I don't own him. You know, so yes. <laughs> and land it sort of feels the same. I have that same sort of sense that yes, you can take responsibility for something, but the idea that you, you own it exclusively to do with what you will, you know, is really strange. So there's that. Yeah. Um and then there's also this this idea that the public, which basically means me or you or everybody we know, you know, we are all the public, are this sort of block, this mass of negligent creatures who all none of us can be trusted. Um, and so it's that tarring everyone with the same brush, I guess. We know that some people don't behave in a way that we would like when they are in green spaces. You know, some people that, that do leave a mess behind, that some people that mm. do behave irresponsibly with their dogs. But wild campers are not, you know, to target wild campers, as, <laughs> as Alex Darwell and his wife have done, is yeah. really almost, it's almost bizarre because if any group of people have a smaller impact on the land than wild campers, I would like to know who they are. You know, genuine wild campers literally arrive late, leave early, leave no trace. So, you know, you're firing at the wrong people if if they're the ones you're targeting. We may have a problem with, with some areas being very heavily used by visitors. Mm. So maybe we could do something about that. Give people more places to go so that those say, areas yeah. aren't quite disperse. so overused. Yeah, yeah. Um, and provide the education, provide people with the, the role modelling. And this is, you know, starts, this isn't a job for the landowner to do or even for us to do. You know, if you go up to someone who's letting their dog chase waders and challenge them about it, you'll probably get treated, you know, it probably will be hostile, you know. Yeah, they, will. Uh, they will They will react badly, they will react defensively. So that is not the place for the for the education to happen. The education needs no. to happen before you get your dog. You know, we, within Rights of Rome, we think there's a definite yeah. case for people com completing some kind of um, awareness course yeah. um, before, you, before you have a dog. Or, you know, but, but in schools, we should be teaching children how to how to be in, in wild places, how to respect wildlife, Um the, the the damage that's done by by trash in the landscape um and by that i don't just mean litter that people leave i mean the stuff that comes from the, the other systems that operate within our land which is agriculture and forestry and and shooting mm. and fishing you know most of the plastic in the ocean comes from from fishing tackle you know yeah. it's so all of that is a problem and we all need to address that together but it's just really really easy to blame the public for those things and to use that as a reason to exclude when actually the the, the deep down reason for exclusion is just that this is mine and I don't want you lot to have it. Um, and that won't wash anymore. You know, they, yeah. they've had it their own way for such a long time. And this, this, there's just been this gradual erosion, this encroachment. I just went for a walk today on a walk that I used to do when my son was very little and I used to walk him with, with it with him in the backpack and it was a decent length, a couple of miles. I knew I could actually carry him that far Mm. beautiful circuit goes up high and that's why we went there today because we thought it's a lovely day i want to get up high get some big long views and some solar input and um <laughs> and i found that that's no longer a circular route you know what you could walk it all the way around and there's a little bit now that's had its i have to look it up to see if it was formerly public right away or if it was a permissive path but that's changed and there's now there's still a path but there's barbed wire across it and so there is now this spur of public footpath that goes nowhere. Um, and it's just this gradual encroachment. You know, I'm 50, 52 now and all my life we've been losing, you know, we've been losing access, oh. we've been losing biodiversity um, and those things are not unrelated. You know, the, the losses are happening while we're being excluded. So yeah. the relationship between 
the public accessing nature and nature decline is not what the landowners are making out. Some landowners, obviously some of them are very supportive of our cause, but um, but those that are saying you can't be trusted to be on the land because you'll damage nature. Well, hold on a minute. Let's look at what we've lost. You know, we lost yeah, 70, we've lost 70% problems. of our wildlife in my lifetime um, while we've been excluded. Yeah. So, uh, it, yeah, it's um, <laughs> it just doesn't add up. No. And we need people to be absolutely clamouring about fixing this biodiversity crisis. And they won't do it if they don't know about it and if they don't, mm. and if they don't care about it. And you, you can't care about something you don't know. So we absolutely need a revolution in our connection with nature. And part of that, absolutely passionate belief that, that an increased right to roam will do that. It's, you know, it's going to be bumpy. Yeah. It's, it, it, there yeah, will be yeah. people that, that get it wrong um, and will be blamed for that, obviously. But part of what, what's coming this year for the, for the campaign is, is our way of addressing that. We're, we're going to um, launch the concept of wild service which apart from being a beautiful play on words because the wild service is this wonderful tree whose fruits were used to make a drink an alcoholic beverage um amazing yes the idea that in having access to land in a sort of recombining approach whereby you know we we, we would we would have, have rights to access the land and whereas the old rights of, of, of commoners were to collect firewood or to graze your animals or to let your pigs roam, that sort of thing. The rights will be different now. Basically, what we would be taking, what we'll be extracting from the land would be you know, the memories and the well-being benefits, um, the health benefits of just simply being there. That's that's yeah. what we want from it. That's what we want to extract. And in return, what can we do? What can we give? And there is so much, so much we can yeah. give. And so that's the idea we're working on. And we're going to be talking to people from who have lots of different relationships with the land about how we can all give service to it. And this is landowners as well. This isn't just us. So there there are there are lots of different ways of honouring the land um, and of helping dig ourselves out of this appalling mess we're in. So watch this space. I like it. I like that. I like that you just said that. So I watch this space. I find it so... Excuse me. Excuse her. I mean, it, it's a change. It's not my dog. So <laughs> I find the removal of people... Unlike for lack of space, like, like like the camping thing. It's just, it feels like a solution to a problem that doesn't exist. That's what it feels like to me. It's like, well, we've got to remove people. But the, but I don't just, I don't see it like you said. It's just, it, you know, we know the problems with biodiversity loss. We know the problems with the climate crisis and habitat. And these are very rarely the issue. I'm not saying that there are never any occurrences or issues because that's, you know, you can't say that. But they're, they're not, they're not nowhere near the top. <laughs> so I just find it a bit of a pointless exercise. Mm. It's a, yeah, it's a matter of scale, a lot of it. I understand the anxiety. You know, there, there are people that are completely genuine about protecting the land who are terribly worried about another about the pressure of more people coming onto it. Um, and I and I do understand that. And I understand the anxiety. I understand where that that is coming from. But again, to to exclude the people that are wanting to come and engage with nature you know you're shooting yourself in the foot because yeah, you yeah. know when elections come round, we need people to to have you know the well have the natural world very very high up on their list of priorities when they come to vote and if they don't care then, then we are yeah, yeah. we are absolutely lost um and so even if you are protecting your little bit of space for very admirable reasons you will still lose if you if you can't bring more people along with you on that journey of caring and understanding so yeah you just have to be brave and trust yeah you know and trust like we said at the beginning trust and also like we just had that chat about community like let this be community let this be part of it you know if you're a landowner with a surrounding community involve them mm. why would you not like you're literally letting responsible eyes and ears onto your property mm. like if you're worried that some people are going to be dicks you're going to have some people that aren't that will will help you know you. prevent yeah. that will help yeah. you with that so it just like wardens mm. like mm. it just makes sense i i'm always baffled by it and the excuse of litter for me as to put it simply is that does that should not ban my right to go and see a white-tailed eagle if i want to mm. yeah like no, yeah not enough no absolutely because i'm not i'm not gonna drop a crisp packet packet mm. mate you probably pick up you probably pick up a few <laughs> yeah and if I've got my dog with me on a lead, I'll probably pick up other dog shit as well, mm. like I do mm. now. So, like, just let me go and see something. Mm. I want I want to. Mm. <laughs> Last question of the podcast is, I, th I mean, you might just say, go, go trespass. <laughs> but if it's the end of the world one, if you could advise someone on something to help connect with nature, what would you say? I wouldn't dream of inciting anyone to break the law. 
But I would say go and find a place where you can be by yourself and stop. Don't just go for a walk. Just stop and sit for, I don't know, 20 minutes, say, you know, mm. if, you, if you've only got five, then make it just five minutes. But the, the longer, the better, because it's amazing what comes when you're still. Um, you know, we do we do have this sphere of influence when we're moving around and that wildlife around us is aware of us. But as soon yeah, as you yeah. stop, you become less of a threat. You become mm. less of a startlement. So just find a nice tree, lean against it and just be still. And, and after five minutes, you'll start to notice, you know, movement around you. After 10, you know, it more and more comes. Partly it's because your senses, you know, your brain's no longer having to do all the stuff that keeps you standing up and moving around and not falling on your face. You, you know, you're, you're more open your channels are more open to what's going on in the, sen- the, the sensory world around you. Um, but also the, the wildlife around you, is it becomes more confident. So, yeah, stopping is really valuable. And also it's not just about what comes from externally, it's what comes within you as well. When you give yourself time, you know, it, it's a bit meditative, I guess. Um, Meditation is not something I've practised a little bit. I'm starting to do a little bit now, but you know, through most of my life I haven't. Um, but I have done that being out, being still, um, and I think it has you know a similar effect. Um, oh, I agree. There have been certainly yeah. been mo- you know moments where I feel an absolute a high where you just feel like the pressure has just completely gone from your body, the stress completely drains away, and it's amazing. You, you, I can never predict when it's going to happen, but it's usually when I'm by myself in a wild place and I've been still for a little while, and just suddenly it all just goes and you feel utterly at home and utterly at peace and who wouldn't want that who wouldn't want that <laughs> who wouldn't here here um amy jane beer thank you so much for being on the show it's been an absolute pleasure to talk about you and what a what a lovely chat that was we put the worlds to rights but we had a laugh as well thank you so much for being on you're welcome ryan lovely enjoyed it Thanks again for listening, everyone. If you'd like to keep up to date with the guests that have appeared in today's Into the Wild episode, then you can do so on social media. Their tags are in the write-up of this episode. Also, you can follow us on social media at Into the Wild Pod on Twitter and Into the Wild Podcast on Instagram. And if you'd like to get in touch about Into the Wild or ask any questions or suggest any ideas for some episodes, you can email me at intothewildpod at gmail.com. A quick note to say that all the opinions and expressions expressed in today's episode belong to the person that said them and do not represent those opinions held by Into the Wild or anyone that we work with or are affiliated with. Into the Wild always aims to be a free show, however running it is not free. If you'd like to support us and say thanks, then you can do so by buying me a coffee. Our Ko-fi link is in the write-up of this episode. Until next time, keep well, stay safe and live the good life.